Welcome to Mind Love, episode 163. Today's episode is all about how to develop mental strength. The way we think is just so influential on both our emotions and our behaviors. And thinking isn't the end-all be-all. Sometimes people think, well, if you just think positive, your life changes. And that's not the case. You're mind isn't going to magically make your life better. You also have to take action, but but often it starts with changing the way you think. It's so hard to come to that point where you realize I can't trust everything I think or some of the beliefs I hold about myself might not be accurate. But once you're open to that, it becomes just clearer all the time of, okay, just because I think this doesn't mean it's true. And then you can challenge those thoughts that you have. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends. First of all, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to hit the subscribe button so you're always updated about new episodes. Plus, you want to know basically the best way to give back to your favorite podcasts? actually go to the iTunes app and leave a five-star review. Reviews are scientifically proven to make me love you more. That's just how it is. I love you when you leave me a review. You sit in my heart for days at a time. No, but seriously, they really help the growth of the show. They're probably the number one thing that you can do besides supporting my sponsors or joining the membership. So it's an easy, free way to give back to a podcast you love. And if you do leave me a review, send it to me at mindlovemelissa on Instagram, and I'll send you a free meditation track. This week, I want to share a review from Lily252. She said, it's like listening to your best friend. Melissa is not only knowledgeable, thorough, and interesting, she's real, honest, and open. Listening to her is like taking a walk with a friend and having one of those conversations that soothes your soul. Well, thank you so, so much, Lily. Your review soothed my soul today. Would you consider yourself mentally strong? Do you even know what that means? The first thing that comes to mind for me is being strong-willed or strong-minded, which is funny because that doesn't always have a positive connotation for me. I kind of think of someone who's stubborn. Most people, though, equate mental strength with mental health. But according to the dictionary, mental health is just the absence of a mental illness. I think you and I both know there are plenty of people out there that might not have diagnosed depression or anxiety, but still wouldn't really be categorized as mentally strong. Also, there are tons of people that might battle with a mental health issue and are at the same time incredibly mentally strong. For example, you can have depression and still actively use your coping tools to regulate your emotions. You can have anxiety and have resilience to back bounce from difficult experiences. You can have ADD and have the determination to accomplish your dreams. You can have OCD and still have a system for curbing your triggers. Actually, quite often it's our mental struggles, whether a full-on mental health disorder or not, that give us that push to create mental strength. Because we start to see clearly that Each decision we're making is either moving us further away or closer towards the life that we truly want to live. For me, this is definitely the case, and it makes sense. Most of us need a pretty good motivation to make a lifestyle change because they're hard. And if we aren't used to consciously creating our lives, often that motivation is a struggle or a hardship. For me, my eating disorder was a catalyst for me healing my relationship with my body. 
Well, actually, my eating disorder was kind of a manifestation of my terrible relationship with my body after being sexually assaulted. And then the health issues that I started having because of that eating disorder, that was the real catalyst for me to make a change. Because as hard as the lifestyle changes were, it seemed a lot better than getting cancer in my stomach or my esophagus. My depression and self-destruction in my early 20s, that was the catalyst for my mindfulness journey. Because I knew if I didn't find something that was going to reroute my life, I was probably going to die. But here's the thing. We don't have to wait for these things to get so bad that we're forced to make changes in our lives. We can choose to consciously create our lives based on what we want out of it rather than just based on what we don't want to happen. And unfortunately, no life is free from struggle. It might be on a spectrum, but it's not free of it. But if you feel like you're one of the lucky ones who got this far without it, you'll have your day, believe me. And you will be so grateful that you spent the time developing that mental strength before you really needed it. But who am I kidding? You've all survived 2020, so I really doubt I'm talking to anyone who has had no struggle. Well, today we're going to learn how to develop the mental strength that will help us lead our best lives. Our guest is Amy Morin, a psychotherapist and the host of the Mentally Strong People podcast. She's also the author of two international bestsellers, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. She also gave one of the most popular TEDx talks of all time. Three key things we will learn are what makes a mentally strong person, why and how to do hard things, and how to push through self-doubt toward our highest purpose. But before we dive in, do you wish you could start each day with some helpful tips on how to develop more mental strength? Just sign up for the Morning Mind Love for daily inspirational messages right to your inbox. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start their day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. It's kind of like your own personal inspiration oracle. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do, like a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a booklet of my personal power lists to help you gain clarity and live each day with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Amy Morin to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. So to get started, what motivated you to focus so much on mental health or really mental strength? Oh, good question. So I was a therapist by trade. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to teach people everything I learned in college about about mental health. And uh, people come into my therapy office who were dealing with depression, anxiety, lots of issues. And uh, about a year into my work, my mom passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And it was one of those situations where she was here one minute and gone the next. And in that moment, my interest in mental strength became personal. It wasn't just about textbooks and teaching people what I learned in college anymore. I really wanted to know what makes people tick and how do you go through hard times and grow from them? Or, you know, how do you go through tough times and not stay stuck in a place of pain? And so I started studying the people in my therapy office. And I'd been taught in college to really build on people's strengths, figure out what they're doing well, and tell them to do more of that. 
but it quickly became apparent to me that if I didn't point out what they, you know, their bad habits, I'd be doing them a disservice. And I realized that what separated people from those who got stuck in life, from those who grew from their pain, it wasn't just about what they did. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. And people who didn't have certain bad habits tended to do better in life. And then I'm glad I studied that because on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mom died, it was three years to the day, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And uh, yeah, I had to figure out now what do I do? I don't have my mom. I don't have my husband. The two most important people in my world. How do I move forward? And again, it just fueled my interest in, in mental strength and how do you go through tough times? How do you um, deal with pain in a healthy way? I think as a society, we're just not taught that. And so many people turn to unhealthy coping skills, whether it's food or sleeping too much or alcohol or drugs, because we just want to numb the pain. We want to escape. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to know how do you, how do you deal with it in a healthy way? And it was really through my own experiences that I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot more than I did in my textbooks. And um, a few years down the road, I was starting to get my life back together. And I was fortunate enough to find love again. And I got remarried. And life was starting to look good, I thought. Here's my new chapter in life. And just as quickly as I started to think that, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he'd become a really important figure in my life. He was my biggest fan when it came to my writing. And the thought of losing one more person, I just thought, I can't stand this. I can't lose anybody else in my life. I've grieved for so long. I can't do it. But obviously, it wasn't like I had a choice. The doctors were pretty clear. His prognosis was really poor. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things mentally strong people don't do. And it was a letter to myself. And it was just a matter of saying, okay, here are the bad habits that you need to avoid right now to get through this. And I would read over that list in the darkest days. And I found it helpful. So I thought, well, if it helps me, maybe it could help someone else. And I published it online, thinking maybe 10 people would read it. But 50 million people read that letter. And here I am almost seven years later, still talking and writing about what it means to be mentally strong. Wow, I couldn't help but hear your story and just kind of reminisce about parts of mine. I lost my dad when I was young as well, only I was the case of the person that you were trying not to be like. I didn't have the psychology background. I was studying to be a journalist. And at the time, I thought it was kind of cool because it was the very beginning of my journey. Well, not the death part at all. But my one of the first lessons in journalism was how to write an obituary because they're supposed to be very straightforward. And so I got to write my dad's obituary. And that was about the extent of what I had learned in college helping me whatsoever. And so I used all those terrible coping skills, uh, drinking, doing recreational drugs, just partying, just trying not to feel. I developed bulimia really badly. And it's interesting because I find that part, looking back on my story, I needed to learn the hard way. And I don't even know I would have been able to kind of teeter into, oh, I think this is a better way to handle it at that time. And it just seemed like it sucked me in, like it was too tempting. And I'm wondering, being young, did you find yourself really struggling not going down that that spiral of what not to do or was the knowledge enough helpful to keep you out of that if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I I struggled with all of it and you know that's why I wrote that letter to myself because it was a matter of saying okay, if you learned anything, just don't do these certain things. Uh 
Yeah, knowing it and doing it are two very different things. And as a therapist, I knew here's what you should do. You should get up, you should exercise, you should take care of yourself. But when you're in a place of really deep, dark pain, knowing it, the head knowledge just isn't enough. It's hard to force yourself to do things when you are just feeling really stuck. And so, you know, I didn't write the list because I'd mastered it. I wrote the list because I struggled with those things. And you know, even when my article went viral and before I knew it, the national, international media was calling me MTV in Finland and CNN in Mexico and everybody's talking about this viral article. Well, they didn't know the context behind it. They assumed, oh, you're a therapist. You wrote these things. They didn't know I'd gone through losses. They didn't know I was doing all of those 13 things. And for a while, I wasn't sure I was going to share it. In fact, I didn't until the book came out when I just decided I'm going to be honest and say, guys, you know, I'm not perfect, even though I'm a therapist and I was teaching people in my therapy office not to do these things. Guess what? I was struggling with them every single day. And that's why I wrote this list because it's hard. And sometimes, you know, you have to be ready to make those changes too. And if you're not ready, hearing them from somebody else, just kind of we make excuses of why we shouldn't do it. You have to be motivated to, to put yourself in the right place and nobody can do it but you. That's so true. And even when I share things with people, I know there's a lot of people who share like, this is what I went through, don't do this. And they almost take it personally when the person doesn't immediately act on it. But like I said, I had to learn the hard way at that time in my life. That was just where my mindset was. But you never really know when you're planting a seed with someone and even when you're planting a seed with yourself. And so a lot of the things that I, when I am struggling, I like, plant these little seeds from my higher self and it takes a while to grow. It doesn't just automatically blossom. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I think we, you know, at different points in our lives, we're more ready to hear information or when somebody says, Hey, it's a really bad idea. You're doing that thing, whether it's that you're neglecting your health or you're drinking too much. When you first hear that, you know, our, our natural reaction is to argue the opposite. Like, no, I'm doing this and it's fine. It's not hurting my health yet. But yet we heard that information and maybe down the road, we'll just really be able to think about it and, and be a little less defensive or to be a little more open to the fact that maybe somebody else cares about us or that we should do something differently. So when you think about it, what do you find is really the difference between mental health and mental strength? Yeah. So a lot of people confuse those two things and it's so easy to get them confused. People would come into my therapy office and say like, oh, I'm depressed. So therefore I'm, I'm not mentally strong enough. But depression doesn't necessarily mean that you're weak. And so I try to explain it if we were to talk about physical health and physical strength. Nobody would doubt it. You know, you can go to the gym and become physically strong, but it doesn't guarantee you won't ever develop a physical health problem. You might still get high cholesterol or diabetes. And being physically strong might reduce your risk of those things, but it doesn't guarantee you won't get them. Mental strength is the same. It can help you become mentally healthier, but it doesn't guarantee you won't ever get depression or you won't ever get anxiety. And so I try to explain to people that mental strength is helpful, but it doesn't necessarily give you a guaranteed buffer. And just because you develop a mental illness doesn't mean you're weak. Some of the strongest people I've ever met in my life were battling mental health issues like depression and anxiety. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A. 
Then I found aloe moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? (laughs) They have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, HIIT classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. EstroControl is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way EstroControl eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. EstroControl was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. EstroControl is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and EstroControl is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. Right. And I have a theory. I think a lot of people have this theory that I feel like the brain balances out in different ways. Some of the most genius people in the world also had sometimes even a debilitating mental health diagnosis. It's like like Van Gogh and like schizophrenia or something. I don't even know if that's the real one that he had, but there's like so many geniuses like that. And it's and so I find that it's because often the brain works differently. Like for me, I did deal with depression for a while. I live in my head a lot. And because of that, I can develop an imbalance. So what I've learned is practices to bring me back into my body. Like I have to do the things to balance it out. At the same time, I also know I have strengths in creativity and in entrepreneurship and the, and these things that other people might struggle with. So 
I find it's really important to reframe sometimes even just the way you're talking to yourself about your own mental health, because if we're beating ourselves up, a lot of the times we're making that issue worse because we're only adding negativity to it. That's it. Exactly. There's a really wildly held belief that if you're smart, then somehow that means you won't develop an illness. Or if you have a lot of skills in life, you're super talented, then you can't possibly have depression you know, we see famous, say, musicians or celebrities or people that are really successful. And then we think, well, how can that be possible that that person also has bipolar? And I think that's getting better over time where people are coming forward and talking about their mental health issues. But I think it's still fairly deeply ingrained that we think that, uh, you know, if you have a mental health issue, you're just not able to be successful or a mental illness is a sign that that you're not good enough. And for those of us that have experienced mental health issues, we carry that around. And it's like sometimes it can be shameful or we think we can't tell anybody or that people will think less of us. So we hide it. And the more we hide it, the worse we feel. And it's it's a difficult cycle to break. A lot of the things that you talk about not to do have to do with our thinking patterns like comparison or perfection or vulnerability. How does the way our patterns of thinking really drive our emotions and our behaviors? And what can we start to do about that? Oh, the way we think is just so influential on both our emotions and our behaviors. And thinking isn't the end all be all. Sometimes people think, well, if you just think positive, your life changes. And that's not the case. You're mind isn't going to magically make your life better. You also have to take action, but but often it starts with changing the way you think. Somebody who, say, believes that they're not good enough often makes that a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe in your heart that you just aren't good enough to succeed, you probably won't try. Or if you try to do things, you'll only put in a half-hearted effort because you think there's no use in trying, I'm not going to succeed. And then you fail, and then it just reinforces your belief, oh, I'm not good enough. And then the more that you fail, the more deeply you believe that. And the more deeply you believe that, the worse you feel. It's this cycle. And there's so many examples of that. The labels we put on ourselves, people who say, oh, I'm just not a smart person. Well, then they're self-conscious when they do things, so they don't put themselves out there. They don't apply for a promotion. They don't uh, attempt to go back to college. They don't want to take classes to better themselves because they think I'm not smart enough. And somebody who thinks I'm just not a good person, I don't deserve to be around nice people, often fill their lives with people who reinforce their beliefs that they aren't good enough. There's tons of research on that, that somebody with low self-esteem chooses friends who put them down just because it reinforces our beliefs. And just becoming more aware of our thinking patterns and the things that aren't true in our lives and how the things maybe we learned in childhood when you were seven and somebody made fun of you and you suddenly thought, oh, I'm just not good enough. Or if I make fun of myself first, maybe people won't make fun of me. Those habits that we develop, they just don't serve us well in life. It's hard to unlearn those things. But once we do that, we can make such a difference in the way that we feel and the actions that we take. And that can change your life. Yeah, I relate to that 100%. I it took me years to really reflect back on how I had gotten my life to such a low point after you know I went from like top of my class to like pretty much completely bottoming out and like I said after years of reflection I started to realize that so much of it was about my self-beliefs really uh, which were created based on a complete lack of self-love. And it's like, the less love I gave myself, the more I craved it from other people. So I was always 
trying to get them to like me by doing what they were doing or basically not living for me, but living for them. The worse I treated myself, the lower my standards became for how I allowed myself to be treated. It was just like this perpetuating cycle. And so I had to start inward and build from there. And the hardest part for me was this duality in my mind of because I had been top of my class at one point, it's like I was kind of like a frog sitting in a pot of boiling water, unaware that my mindset was completely disintegrating. And so I still identified with having high self-esteem while I was mentally beating myself up. And it took me a long time to really audit those thought patterns to figure out where I was kind of self-destructive. So how do you recommend people start to become aware of some of those thought patterns that need to be changed? Because sometimes they're so subtle or subconscious that we don't even know that they're there. Oh, absolutely. And I think you brought up a great example of that in your own life. And it's hard because we see ourselves a certain way. And then even when other people point it out, uh, we tend to dismiss it. You know, in my in the my women's book, I talk a lot about compliments and how we receive compliments or how we don't receive them. And as women, often, if somebody says, gosh, you did a great job in that meeting today, or really quick to say something like, oh, it was nothing, because we're uncomfortable giving ourselves credit for doing a good job. So I think, you know, it can just start by paying attention to the way that you think and the thoughts that you have. Sometimes people keep a thought diary. Sometimes um, people find that writing it down just helps them really identify some clear patterns of, gosh, I put myself down 17 times a day, or I always assume the worst when it comes to these certain situations. So I think that can be a great first step is just to write down some of the thoughts that you have uh, and to pay more attention to them. Uh, Sometimes it's about having somebody to talk to as well. I think having an objective person who can give you feedback on the way that you see yourself versus the way other people see you can be super helpful. You know, some people get that from their friends or family, but sometimes it's hard to listen to your friends or family or they don't quite have an objective opinion Obviously, as a therapist, I'm a big fan of going to therapy to to understand the way that you think better. Obviously, online therapy at the moment is quite popular. And so I always recommend it doesn't hurt to have somebody else to talk to, an objective opinion to run some of this stuff by someone, just to figure out what are your self-limiting beliefs. We all have them. They're hard to uncover. But once you do, you recognize these patterns in your life and they become so obvious that uh, you can't unsee them once somebody points them out to you, and then you can start to change them. So, you know, for anybody who's struggling to really recognize what their unhealthy thought patterns are, I say get professional help. And to know that help isn't a sign of weakness, that it takes a lot more strength to ask for help than it does to pretend you don't have any problems at all. And there's a survey actually by Very Well Mind where they just asked people about their thoughts on therapy. And 90% of people said, yeah, seeing a therapist is a sign of strength. And I'm so glad that people are starting to see it that way, because I think for so long we thought that getting professional help was a sign of weakness. And it's not. It's a sign of strength. If we see a doctor to take care of our bodies, it just makes sense to see a therapist to take care of your mind, too. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was randomly watching a an old episode of Mad Men, and one of the first episodes I forget his wife's name, but he's basically sending the main character sending his wife to therapy. And it's funny, back in those days, the stigma that seeing a therapist had, like, they're like, 
she's not crazy. I'm not sending her there or whatever it was. And it was just like a very interesting outlook on how much we've evolved as people to where, you know, it, it is crazy when I think about it, how long we totally neglected our health as a society and not even just mental health, even physical health back in the day, like Jack LaLanne was like the first physical health guy. And I, it makes me wonder how we even survived back then. Right. Yeah, I think we've come a long way. And I'm so happy and especially in the mental health space that now we can recognize that, you know, it shouldn't be shameful, shouldn't be embarrassing to say that you talk to somebody like, yeah, shouldn't we all want to improve ourselves? And that should be a something that we are open and willing to talk about, gosh, I'm working on this, I'm working on myself, whether it's I'm working on my diet, I'm working out at the gym, I'm getting my health taken care of. And a big part of that is I'm getting my mental health taken care of because a therapist can help change the way that you think. There's tons of research on that and it physically makes changes in your brain. Cognitive behavioral therapy alters your brain. They can see it on brain scans, that it can light up parts of your brain. It can help your brain grow in different ways when you practice it and you think that's really powerful. Why wouldn't you want your brain to become the best that you can possibly make it? And if therapy can do that, why wouldn't you try? Yeah, it's interesting, too, how I don't know if it's because we're becoming aware of more of the issues that we all have, but it's like even with physical health, we have more tools and more access to these to the information to keep us healthy. But as a society, we're like fatter than ever, and more unhealthy than ever. And then even in the mental health department, we've got all of these tools and and all this information to help us. But it does seem like some of these mental disorders are, and I say that as somebody who suffers from many of them, so not pointing fingers, like we all have them. So do you think that it's mostly we're becoming aware of these things and we're like, oh, wow, these are things that can be balanced out? Or do you think that society has so much like technology and things like that that are being counterproductive to what we're trying to do? <laughs> I think it's a combination. You know, when you look at the research, uh, anxiety, depression, sleep issues, a lot of the symptoms that we're talking about with mental health issues, even though, say, back 50, 60 years ago, we didn't necessarily have a name for them. But when they did research on the symptoms people were talking about compared to symptoms people have now, yeah, it's much higher. It's much worse now than it was back then. And even though we've come a long way in terms of treatment and antidepressants were invented, anti-anxiety medication, we're still reporting our symptoms are higher than ever. And I think part of that is our the world that we live in, that technology is supposed to make things easier, or we're supposed to uh, be working in a different way that's more fun, and you don't have to necessarily go to the same kind of job your grandparents did. But, but there, along with that freedom and the flexibility and technology comes different kind of stress. And we're just not spending time outdoors. We spend less time with our families. We, we don't have as many hobbies. Uh, we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves to collect things, uh, material possessions. And there's the race to, to beat people, have a bigger house, a better car, um, to go on more luxurious vacations. So I think uh, I think it's a combination. I do think our mental health is on the decline in a lot of ways, but I also think now that we're wiser, we're talking about it more. So it could just be that back in the day, people didn't didn't admit it as openly as we do now. One of the things that you talk about not doing is don't avoid hard things or tough challenges. And that one stuck out to me because one of the things I realized when, again, I was auditing my life and trying to be really honest with myself about what my habits were doing. And one of those things that I have to constantly keep in check is social media. 
And I am always in the cycle of like deleting all my social media apps and then downloading it again because I need to post something on Facebook or whatever <laughs> for my business. And then I'm like, I'll delete it right afterwards. And then I don't. And what I noticed is that if I check social media too early in the morning, I have a hard time doing hard things throughout the day. And from what I understand, it's because of those initial dopamine hits from the social media. It's just easier to want to pick that back up instead of going and like working on my speech or creating a course or whatever it does. So it's been this challenge for me to kind of weigh back and forth and like have all this structure in place to make sure that I still show up for those hard things. So I'm curious, what are some of your tactics to making sure that you still do hard things or tough challenges despite all the stimulation or the things that are counterproductive around you? And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. 
Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe easy money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND. And depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. So I'm curious, what are some of your tactics to making sure that you still do hard things or tough challenges despite all the stimulation or the things that are counterproductive around you? Oh, you know, I think that's a great example, too, of just talking about how easy it is to scroll through social media rather than get up and go and go do something. And so I'm a big fan of saying set some goals for yourself. I think we all do better in life when we have long-term goals that we're trying to reach, but also we need short-term goals. If you say, I'm going to pay off $10,000 worth of debt, well, you're probably not going to do that this week. So what can you set for a goal for yourself for this week? Maybe it's, I'm going to save $100 or I'm going to lose one pound. But when we have little goals for ourselves, and even that, if your goal is to to lose a little bit of weight, then you still need a objective for today. So maybe your objective is I'm going to work out for 20 minutes. And when we have those little things in our lives that we're working toward, I feel like then we feel better. And when you get a little bit of taste of success, then you can can keep going. And so I'm always looking for ways in my life to say, how do I keep challenging myself so that I feel like I'm growing? Otherwise, it's easy to just feel stagnant. It's easy to feel stuck. Life gets kind of boring. We go to great lengths sometimes to avoid feeling anxious to challenge ourselves is often anxiety provoking. But when you don't have any anxiety in your life, your life gets kind of depressing. So you need to find that balance of how do I challenge myself enough that my life is exciting? But on the other hand, you know, you don't want to just put yourself out there to the point that that you don't have any downtime or time to just relax and be. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that you have enough going on in your life that you feel like you're living a, a rich and full life all at the same time. Right. We need to start a, a new type of niche around conscious anxiety. How to create conscious anxiety in your life. It reminds me of how people say, you know, if there's not a lot of struggle in your life, you will create your own. There's some people yes. that end up being in these like super cushy environments uh, where, you know, they've been given everything. They were born into wealth. They have a business waiting for them, whatever it happens happens to be and they will find a way to create that struggle in their lives. Yes, I think that's so true. And so I think for all of us, you know, the more you challenge yourself, then it's a great opportunity to feel better and to gain more mental strength. And then when you feel stronger, then you can come up with new challenges for yourself. And it's just a great way to keep growing. Otherwise, we get stagnant, you get stuck in a rut and life gets really strange. I mean, during the pandemic, I think a lot of people have have felt that just because they can't get out and do the things that they normally do. And they're noticing it doesn't feel very good, that we just need to be challenged intellectually and emotionally and physically. I mean, you can just keep challenging yourself. You feel like you're really living life to its fullest. Well, another thing you recommend people not do is overthink. And I think we're all so guilty of that. And it's interesting because I've always been an overthinker, you know, like when I end a conversation, I will spend days replaying different things I could have said, <laughs> but uh -huh. I didn't really notice it quite as much until I actually started creating that 
those conscious anxiety things we were talking about when I started really creating my goals because that's when I noticed it was holding me back and I really had to get a handle on it. Before, it was just like how I dealt with life and I didn't feel that good. But then it became like, well, maybe I'm not launching this thing or maybe I'm not taking action on my real dreams because I'm talking myself out of them too much. So how do you get a handle on overthinking? Yeah, you know, for me, I'll notice when I'm overthinking, you know, when it takes me 20 minutes to send an email that's two sentences, because I'm backspacing or questioning if I should do something differently. And I think, what am I doing? Like, what's the worst that would happen? Just hit the send button. And so something I found helpful is to just really recognize when I'm overthinking by asking myself, am I ruminating or am I problem solving? And if I'm solving a problem, it's helpful to keep thinking about it. But if I'm just rehashing an old conversation or I'm sitting around thinking about all the worst case scenarios, but I'm not doing anything about it, it's not helpful. And, you know, it's even if I'm solving a problem, we all have this tendency to assume the more I think about a solution, the longer I think about it, the harder I think about it the better off I'll be. I'll come up with a brilliant solution. Well, research doesn't show that that's true at all. In fact, the opposite is often true. When they have had people sit and think about a problem and try to come up with a solution for hours on end, and then they take another group of people and they say, think about this for 10 minutes and then go do something different, and then they study who comes up with better solutions, the people who thought about the problem less usually have a better solution to it. And so keeping that in mind, and also the fact that our brain tends to work on things in the background. If you've ever been in the shower and suddenly this great idea pops into your head or you go to bed at night wondering what to do when you wake up in the morning and the answer is crystal clear, it's because your brain is working in the background. You don't need to just sit and fret and worry for hours and try to come up with something. Go do something else for a while, whether you go outside and go for a walk or you do a project for a little bit, your brain will come up with an answer for you. And it's usually a better solution than if you just sit and think. So I try to keep those kinds of things in mind. And when I find myself just thinking and thinking and thinking, sometimes I just run it by somebody, whether I ask my husband, hey, what do you think of this? And he's always got a you know really quick answer. And I think, oh, okay, that makes sense. Sometimes I just need a reality check. And at other times, I just ask myself again, like, is this worth spending another 20 minutes working on? And usually the answer is no. So I just go ahead and, and do it, take some kind of action or change the channel in my brain, as I like to call it, which is about getting up and doing something different. If you are thinking about something and you tell yourself, oh, don't think about that, you can't. The more you try not to think about something, the more it keeps popping up into your head. But if you get up and you go do something, again, maybe you call a friend and talk about something completely different, or you go outside and, and get a change of scenery, or you work on a specific project, like I'm going to clean out this closet, get your brain thinking about something else uh, so that you can reduce your emotions. When we're really anxious about something and we're thinking about it, it's hard to think clearly. Or when we're really upset or we're angry, thinking about something longer and harder isn't going to do us any better. Sometimes you need to reduce the intensity of your emotions a bit so you can see the problem from a different angle or you can think about it more clearly. Yeah, it's kind of like how some of those puzzle games, you can like flip the board and all of a sudden you see all these word merges or whatever game you're playing that you didn't see before just because it's in from a different angle. It's super helpful. And I've found too that that's part of the reason that setting the goal is so helpful is that the mind working in the background thing. Because if I don't set the goal, 
My mind is working on the background on whatever I was last thinking about. <laughs> if I actually consciously set a goal, like, okay, this is what I'm going to be working on. And then I step away or it's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to launch a course next month or I'm going to uh, start my email list next month. And then I step away. A lot of the times the, those subconscious patterns or the reticular activating system, I believe they call it will be working towards that thing. But if you don't set like the destination of your GPS, it doesn't really know what to work for in the background, if that makes sense. Yeah, we can waste a lot of time just kind of wandering around in circles or being completely aimless without without a target. We do much better when we have some kind of a target, when you know what you're working toward and what your goal is. Absolutely. So you mentioned our emotions and kind of getting our emotions regulated before we work on a problem. How is it that our emotions hold us back or create a filter for what we're trying to do? And then how do we start to learn some emotional regulation skills? Oh, good question. So first off, to be clear, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel sad. Your emotions aren't bad. So often people talk about feelings like they're either positive or negative. But the truth is, any feeling can be positive or negative. So uh, anxiety, for example, is meant to keep you safe. If you didn't have any anxiety at all, you might jump off a bridge when your friend dares you to. Your anxiety is supposed to kick in and say, hey, this is a bad idea. But on the other hand, our anxiety is often on overdrive. So when your boss says, can you give this presentation? You might say no, because it seems like it's too scary. Or your anger can be helpful when it gives you courage. Maybe you stand up for yourself or someone, but it's not helpful when it causes you to say something really mean to a loved one. So first of all, I think it's really important to just remind yourself of that, that it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling, but there are times when your emotions aren't helpful and you might get stuck. Or if you're really sad and you can't get out of bed for three days, that's when we know you need to shift your emotional state and do something different. And there are tons of coping strategies. And just in recognizing, well, how do I cope with certain feelings? And is that helpful or not helpful? Again, maybe you watch a little TV and that takes the edge off when you're stressed out. It might not be a bad thing, but if all you do is watch TV, then it becomes unhealthy. Or maybe you occasionally reach for a cinnamon bun when you're uh, upset and that helps calm you down. It's not the worst thing in the world. But if you're doing it six times a day, obviously then it becomes a problem. So I think for all of us to just know what are what are the tools in my toolbox? Maybe you work out, maybe you exercise, maybe you find it helpful to knit or you read a book or you like to draw. We all need to know what are my healthy coping strategies? When can I use them? How do they work for me? And if they're not working, what else can I do? I always encourage people to experiment with different things. Maybe yoga works for someone, but somebody else finds meditation more helpful. Or maybe someone says, I call my friends and we talk about funny things and that helps to calm me down or somebody else might play video games for a few minutes. It's just about knowing what works well for you and making sure that you're using those tools in a way that's healthy and helpful so that you feel like you can regulate your emotions, but also that you can tolerate some discomfort. It's not just about numbing yourself or escaping any kind of emotional pain. Sometimes we need to feel those feelings as part of the healing process too. Right. I find that I have a pretty good ability to calm my emotions and to get myself into a place of feeling better. What is more difficult sometimes and I need more tools for and sometimes just to force myself is to actually figure out how to be productive. <laughs> it's like, okay, I've gotten myself emotionally regulated. I'm in a calm place. I feel good. But 
that was my work for the day. I don't want to actually get up and do something more productive. <laughs> so what are your tools for being productive or behaving productively, even if we're experiencing a lot of this emotional discomfort? Uh, you know, so one of my favorite tricks for those kinds of days when you're really sad or really anxious and you think oh, I can't function today is to, first of all, you might decide I need to deal with my feelings for a little bit. So maybe you go for a quick walk. You take a few minutes to, to do something to reduce the intensity of your feelings, and that might be helpful. But when you're really feeling stuck, too, and you need to get something done, I like the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule is just when you say, okay, I'm going to work on this for 10 minutes. If at the 10-minute mark I really didn't want to keep going, I'll take a break. And you might find that once you get to the 10-minute mark, and this can work whether you're working out and you just don't feel like it or you have to write a really boring report for work and it seems like it's just too dreadful to do. But once you get to the 10-minute mark, it's usually much easier to keep going. You might find that nine times out of 10, you're like, okay, I'll just keep going now. Because starting is usually the hardest part. And when we're in a mood where we just don't feel like doing anything, it's really hard to get started. And so if you can just use that to get yourself motivated to get going, often that can help. And then once you get going, it's much easier to keep going. So I use that a lot in my life on a daily basis, I think, just to say, okay, let's go with the 10-minute rule and see what happens. And I'd say 99% of the time, once I get to the 10-minute mark, I'm like, fine, I can keep doing this. It's not as bad as I imagined. Because when you're in a bad mood, you'll imagine that it's going to be much more worse than it actually is. You'll think, oh, it's going to be so boring. I can't stand it or I'm way too tired to exercise. But once you start exercising, you might realize, no, it's not that bad. And then when you have those days where you get to the 10 minute mark and you're like, no, I just can't keep going. Give yourself a break. Maybe you then say, all right, I'll come back to it in a couple more minutes and try it again. But often that can that can help. And to cut yourself some slack. Sometimes I think we're so hard on ourselves to be productive all the time. And then we beat ourselves up if we waste time or if we think, gee, I didn't do as good of a job today as I could. But beating ourselves up just does worse. Uh, Self-compassion is really important. You know, when they've done studies on this for nurses, for example, who are studying for exams and they don't do very well, the nurses who beat themselves up saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm never going to pass. I'm a bad person. I'm so stupid. They do worse the next time around as compared to the ones who say, it's okay. I've got this. I can do better next time. So I think it's just important to talk to yourself the same way you talk to a friend. Ask yourself, what advice would I give to my friend right now? And then give yourself those same kind words. And you can usually we're so much kinder to other people than we are ourselves. But when we practice this, that on ourselves, we feel better. And then when we feel better, we can start to do better. Yeah, I've actually even like identified like the little girl version of myself that I visualize when I'm doing any self-talk because it's easier for me to be kind to her <laughs> than it is for me to be kind to me. And it's just a, a little trick that helps me remember because I'm like picturing a little girl <laughs> that's throwing a fit, not wanting to do this stuff. And those words that we say to ourselves are so important because I think what a lot of people don't realize is say you are feeling unproductive and not not doing what you're supposed to do, the more that you take the action you don't want to take and then you beat yourself up for that, you're actually creating a self-image around the person that you're trying not to be, if that makes sense. And so, and it's those self-image, the self-image that really drives what we believe to be possible about ourselves or the next step that we're going to take, as you said before, uh, the words that we say to ourselves might limit your 
desire to go ask for a raise or to apply for this job that you sort of feel is out of your league. And so really getting that mental chatter in check is so important. Right. It absolutely is. And I just love the idea sometimes of just when your brain tells you you can't do something, just say challenge accepted and move forward and try that thing anyway, because the only way you'll know for sure is if you do it. And, you know, I see so many people who talk themselves out of doing hard things, but because they don't ever try, they don't ever prove themselves wrong. They don't ever start to think differently. And sometimes the best way to prove to your brain that you're better than your brain gives you credit for is to actually go out there and do it. And you can come up with challenges for yourself, sometimes really small steps. Somebody who has some social anxiety, for example, might think, gosh, if I go to this event, nobody's going to talk to me. Well, then they go sit in the corner and nobody talks to them and they leave the event thinking, oh, I'm so socially awkward. Nobody likes me. So they might walk into that situation thinking, "Okay, I'm going to introduce myself to five people tonight and see what happens. And then when they start talking to people, they start putting themselves out there. They find that people are friendlier, that people are willing to engage, and that those thoughts of nobody's going to like me weren't actually true. And when we challenge those kinds of thoughts, we can teach ourselves that I'm stronger than I think I am. I'm better. I'm more capable than my brain gives me credit for. And then it just becomes sort of like a game. I'm going to challenge it. Every time my brain says I can't do something, I'm going to go out there and do it anyway. And you can literally train your brain to start to see you differently when you do that. That's such a good point because I think so often we believe that our brain has this insider knowledge about us. Like, well, it's it's my thoughts. I know myself better than anyone else. These thoughts that are telling me I can't do this must be right. When really our brain is just like a supercomputer and the words that it's saying to you, the thoughts that you're having are more a compilation of what you've been allowing it to be programmed with than it is actual truth at all. <laughs> so if we can just get used to being like, you don't know what you're talking about, I'm going to do this anyways, then we're going to be embodying this new belief and, and creating the evidence that we need to become the person that our brain is telling us we might not even have the ability to become. That's it exactly. It's so hard to come to that point where you realize I can't trust everything I think or some of the beliefs I hold about myself might not be accurate. But once you're open to that, it becomes just clearer all the time of, okay, just because I think this doesn't mean it's true. And then you can challenge those thoughts that you have. Well, thank you so much for having so many useful tips that we can apply to our lives even today. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, your book and what you do, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? The best place is my website, which is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. And I've got information about my books in my TEDx talk and all the services and courses and things that we have out there about mental strength. All of the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 163. So your challenge for this week is to pick one of the things we talked about today and apply it to your life. What I'm currently working on is doing hard things. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but I honestly oscillate in waves of whether or not I want to do hard things. And through the pregnancy, I've found that I'm already doing a hard thing, so I keep giving myself a little bit more slack than I usually do, which is fine, and yes, I deserve it, and I understand, but I'm also very aware that I am not my happiest self when I'm letting myself off the hook so often. 
I found that I was letting myself off the hook more than I actually needed to because I started developing a habit of letting myself off the hook and using pregnancy as an excuse. So I'm trying to not only honor my energy while simultaneously still pushing myself to do hard things and just checking in with myself often. And want to know a little secret? I found that social media and consuming and Netflix and chilling does not help me do hard things. It actually gets my brain so used to those quick dopamine fixes that it becomes nearly impossible to sit down and do something that requires focus and determination. So understanding how to actually approach some of these things that give you mental strength, often you also need to understand what you might need to cut out of your life or at least cut back on or just restructure. So for me, I've been starting my day with the hardest task that I have. For a long time, I was really pushing myself to start my day with focus on me, do my morning routine, do yoga, do meditation. But what I've found, at least in this phase of my life, is that I have no problem prioritizing those things. I've always prioritized fitness. I've prioritized my mental health and taking time for me in the last few years quite easily. So when I start with that, I end up feeling very chill through the rest of my day, which is great if that's what you're going for. But for me, I'm going for focus and productivity. So now I've been starting with my hardest task for work, first thing for a few hours, and then taking a break for fitness and mindfulness and meditation at about 10 a.m. And that is what's working for me really well right now. So check in with yourself and figure out what works for you to develop one of these skills at a time. Don't overload yourself. When we try to pack on too many habits, sometimes we can fail and then discourage ourselves way too quickly. So pick one at a time, implement it until you feel like you've gotten the hang of it before you add the next one. If you love Mind Love or this episode was really helpful for you, please Tap the share button and share it with somebody specific or take a screenshot and tag me at MindLoveMelissa. You have no idea how happy I get when I see you guys sharing on Instagram. It's like the best parts of my day, along with five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you feel like adding a little joy out in the universe that you know is going to cause a lot of excitement, please leave a review or share the podcast. If you're not yet subscribed, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're reminded of new episodes. I've been releasing some of my exclusive episodes for a very short period of time, so if you are notified, you get those before they go to members only. If you want to become a member, head to mindlove.com premium. You get access to all of the backlog of premium exclusive episodes as well as meditations every month. And there's even an option to join my inner circle where we meet for virtual calls, which are seriously so, so amazing and much needed right now because I think we all need our high vibe circle of friends. So reach out to me if you have any questions about that at melissa at mindlove.com. And otherwise, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.